Good morning, good morning. For those who know, know me, my name is Rob Jones, and it's good to be here on this Lord's Day to worship our God, our holy, holy, holy God. If you could please turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. And the title of this message this morning is Fidelity to Prayer. Fidelity to Prayer. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And it reads, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she would not beat me down by her continued coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And would not God give justice to his elect? who cried to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he would give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, would he find faith on earth? Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we praise you and thank you that you have summoned us, called us to come to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would condescend and teach us, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty and the wonder and the truth in your word. I pray that your word will find a home in our hearts to transform and conform us to the image of Christ. I pray that I will move out the way and that Christ will speak to your people, that you would govern my tongue to speak only your truth. And Lord, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Prayer is the life source for the Christian. It's the most important, the most powerful, and the most paramount weapon that we have at our disposal. It can disarm our fears, our anxieties, our enemies, and our sins. It can reorient us from a simple and a carnal disposition. It can buffer us from the sweet lies and the fleeting pleasures that this world offers us. Prayer is where we can locate an alien strength, a power, an efficacy that we cannot produce on our own. Prayer is where we can peel off the garments of sin and iniquity and replace them with the garments of praise and worship and holiness. Prayer is what brings about a change within us, where we can appropriate and encounter the supernatural. And the reason this is our reality is because whom we're praying to, a sovereign, holy, holy, holy God, who reigns with all power, who has dominion and authority over things seen and unseen. Prayer is where we can bend the ear, converse, and have an audience with God our Father and foster a deep and significant relationship. 
Prayer is the foundation for the Christian life. It must not be just an attachment or appendix to our life. It must be our life. Daily, we must be about the business and the discipline of prayer because with it, grace and mercy is realized. The great John Wesley says, storm, storm the throne of grace and persevere therein and mercy will come down. We must trouble God with our prayers constantly. Come to him even though it seems like our prayers just escape our lips and hit the ceiling and go no further. When it seems that he has turned a deaf ear to us, we must continue in the business and the discipline of prayer. And in this passage this morning, Christ tells us always to pray and not to lose heart. Now, before we begin to unpack our verses this morning, I want to us to get our mental bearings and some background to what's going on. Um, this passage is hitched and is connected to the previous chapter, chapter 17 and verses 22 and 37. And in those verses, the Pharisees ask Christ, when would the kingdom come? And Jesus tells them that the kingdom is here because the king of the kingdom is here. And he informs the disciples of the day of his coming and his second judgment. Jesus lets the disciples know that even though the kingdom is here, the full reign and the consummation of the kingdom is, is going to take a while. His coming, his return is going to be a while. And in the meantime, the minutia of life and, and the world will continue on the same. But there's going to come a time, a moment when they will go through some enormous challenges, some difficult trials and dark providences. And because of this, they're going to become spiritually fatigued and want to give up and long for his coming. And this goes for us as well. We're going to have some dark times, some some difficult trials, and we will want to give up and long for Christ's coming. But we must always pray and not to lose hearts. In our passage this morning, Jesus puts forth a parable to prepare to instruct and construct them and us to have an attitude, a disposition, a posture, a mindset for prayer. He is saying in order to endure to have resolved, to persevere, to not lose heart, is by being connected to him in prayer. Prayer is the conduit, it's the channel that would embolden and strengthen them while they are being persecuted and disenfranchised and oppressed. It is in this context, Christ is speaking to them on how they should wait and live. And he uses this parable to labor his point. So let's begin to unpack our verses this morning, beginning at verse one. And he told them a parable to the effect that they are always pray and not lose heart. Immediately, we are given the purpose and the meaning and the point of, of this parable. And that's to always pray and not to lose heart. And beloved, this is not a suggestion. This is not just good advice, but this is a command. This is a must. Again, Jesus is preparing them for the evil days ahead. And just like them, we're going to have some evil days, some dark nights of the soul. Times we want to give up and give in and throw in the towel because of what life has thrown at us. But prayer will be our strength. It will be our ally, our advocate. It will buttress our faith in those bleak moments that are sure to come. 
We all know how difficult it is to pray when we encounter afflictions and hardship, when we drink the bitter cup of the anguished. It's hard to pray when the doctor gives you good, bad news. It's hard to pray when you're stressed out about your finances because they're not adding up. It's hard to pray when you lose your job or your marriage is, is hemorrhaging. It's hard to pray when your children are not responding to the gospel or if you're entangled in a sin. It's difficult to pray in those times. Some of us find it hard to pray in seasons of blessings when everything is going well with us. But Christ commands us to pray always, no matter what condition, no matter what station, no matter what situation we are in our lives, we should pray. In his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, C.S. Lewis says this, perhaps as those who do not turn to God in petty trials will have no habit or such resort to help them when the great trials come. So those who have not learned to ask him for childish things will have less readiness to ask him for great ones. In other words, we must have an open communication with God in all things. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 and 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus for you. We must keep praying and do not lose heart. Now Jesus is about to paint a picture for them by throwing a parable alongside with this spiritual principle to illustrate and communicate what habitual and consistent and unfailing prayer looks like. And we see this in verse two. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. We have here a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. You see, judges were to execute God's justice. They were to be his agents. This judge, he was wicked and immoral. They said he did not fear God. And this word fear means to revere, to have reverence, to be afraid, to be alarmed, to be frightened. This judge did not fear God, which is the beginning of wisdom. He was judging in ignorance. He did not fear God. This judge should have been like Lucy in C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy asked Mr. Beaver about Aslan, who is the, the, uh, the Christ figure in the book, and she asked, was he safe? And then Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. God is good, but in case you did not know, he is not safe. He's not a tame God. And he should and must be feared and revered. And this judge should have known this. Now, not only does this judge not fear God, but he doesn't respect or regard anyone. And this word respect is an interesting word. It means be, to, uh, to be put to shame or to be ashamed. So in other words, this man, this judge, he had no shame. No matter how horrible, how cruel, how bad he treated someone, he was not ashamed by his behavior. He was autonomous, a law to himself. He had no basis, no foundations for his verdicts. He wasn't moved by pity, by empathy, by sympathy, 
by truth or by justice. He didn't consider the reverence or the worship of God. He did not re regard anyone. So he violated the commandments to love God and to love thy neighbor. Judges were to honor and protect the needs of the people, especially the widows. They were to administrate God's law, to execute his judgment, and to be his representatives. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 5 through 7, it says he, and that's Jehoshaphat the king, he appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you and giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. This judge, this man aborted his purpose of our honorable and prestigious position. He cares nothing for God's law. This judge has all the power, a power that he abuses and perverts. Now let us pivot our attention to this widow and look at verse three. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Jesus is making a, a contrast here by introducing us to this widow. We have a judge who has all power and a widow who has no power. In antiquity, in biblical time, widows and women in general, they had no intrinsic standings. They had no rights of their own. A woman's right was through her husband. So therefore, being a widow meant she had no husband, and therefore she had no rights. This widow is a perfect picture of a person of weakness who is powerless and hopeless. She's in a, a society that, where she has no resources, no influences to get justice. She has no husband, she has no sons, no one to advocate for her, no one to stand up for her or defend her. She is helpless. There may be some here that feel this way this morning. You might feel helpless and dejected, that everything is just out of reach for you, that life is bearing down on you and, and things seem unfair and everything is just going wrong, wrong and you just don't understand it, so you feel defeated and worthless. And you've been praying to God and, and you may be praying about things for days, for weeks, for months, even years. And there's no answer. It seems like there's no answer. And you feel helpless and discouraged, and now your heart is cold and bitter and numb. And the last thing you want to do is continue to pray. And you, and you feel like you're at a loss. But always pray. Continue to pray. Continue to ask. Let this widow's tenacity be a template to be an example to instigate and generate hope for you in your prayer life. It says that she wants justice. She wants equity. She wants to be vindicated and avenged to punish her adversaries, her opponent and her enemy. This widow has been unjustly treated. Now we don't know the exact circumstances. Maybe her husband or her family was killed. 
Maybe someone cheated her out of some income and she was taken advantage of. We don't know the exact situation, but we do know that she has been violated and she wants justice. She wants to, what is owed and due to her. And her only advocate, her only justice is an unjust judge who doesn't fear God, who doesn't respect man. And this lady, this widow has no status. She has no influence, nothing to bargain with. So her chances do not look promising. But she keeps coming to the judge and he keeps refusing her, dismissing her. And we see this in verse four. It says, for a while he refused. Let's stop there for a moment. For a while he refused. He kept refusing her, knowing that her claims were valid, knowing that she has been violated, knowing that his priority was to defend and execute justice for widows. But he keeps refusing her. He keeps dismissing her. She had nothing to benefit him, nothing to offer him, nothing to strike a deal with. Her only weapon of persuasion, her only resource, her only impact, her only leverage was the pressure of persistence to continue to plea, continue to beg, continue to request for justice, to fight for what she deserved until he capitulates and give in to her pleas. And that's exactly what he does. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, in verse five, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continued coming. This judge gives her justice because she decided she would not be ignored. She has become relentless and she pursues him. Day after day after day, she goes to that courtroom and said, judge, vindicate me, give me justice. She sees him in the morning at breakfast at the Crackle Barrel Judge, give me justice, defend me. She sees him at lunch. Judge, I need to be defended, do your job. I have been wrong, help me. She goes to his home, knocks on the door and his wife comes to the door and she says, honey, that widow's here. And he's like, judge. Judge, give me justice. Help me, do your job, vindicate me. She continues to pressure him till he gives up. He throws in a towel, he says, okay, I will give you justice, just leave me alone. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about this widow. He only cares about his peace, his comfort, his ease. So he gives her justice. I would give her justice so she would not beat me down by her continued coming. This word beat, it's an interesting verb here. And this is a boxing term. It depicts someone in a boxing match and it's beginning to hit under the eye over and over again until it's beaten black and blue. It refers being disabled, subdued, to become weary. This widow is like a, a, a verbal Mike, Mike Tyson that she keeps jabbing and hitting and hitting blow after blow, begging and pleading for justice. So he gives up, he taps out. 
This widow's persistence has debilitated him. And he says, you know what? I give up. I've been hit with too many strikes under the eye. My, too many body blows, too many verbal jabs. So to get her out of my hair and to get her out of my life, I will give her justice. Now the powerless becomes powerful. The defenseless becomes defended. The victim is now the victor. Her persistence is rewarded. Always pray and do not lose heart. This parable is a parable of contrast and comparison, divergence and similarity. And Jesus, Jesus will use this contrast and comparison to show us two truths. And the first truth is he's going to show us is who God is and what God is like. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Will God not give justice to his elect? Jesus is saying that this unjust judge is not like our God. And he uses an argument from the lesser to the greater to prove this point. And the argument goes like this. If this immoral, unrighteous, unjust judge who cares only for his selfish gain, his selfish interests, who does not fear God, who does not love God, who does not respect man, who does not love this widow and yet gives her justice, how much more would a loving holy, holy God, who happens to be our father, will act and give justice, equity, and answer the prayers of his elect. If an unholy, wicked judge will help someone who he despises, how much more would a holy God, who is totally in love with us, answer our prayers? That's the argument that Jesus is making here. But sometimes we think God is like this judge, that he doesn't have our interests at heart, that he doesn't notice us, because it seems as though that our prayers are not being responded to. He just remains silent. Beloved, that's an inaccurate assessment. Jesus is saying here that God is more eager, that he is more willing to hear our prayers than we are to pray to him. God is more committed to apprehend and answer our prayers than we are to pray those prayers. Christ is teaching us not to lose hope in our circumstances, never to relinquish our resolve in prayer. And you need to know this. You need to know this, that God hears every, each and every prayer that the believer prays. He hears each and every prayer, each, every word, vowel, syllable, whatever. He hears everything that we pray, and he will answer our prayers. But the thing is, sometimes we don't like to answer. Sometimes his answer is no, because he has something else in mind. Perhaps he wants to work something in us. Perhaps he wants to work something out of us to promote sanctification. Or sometimes it's something that we don't need, something that would impede our sanctification. So sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. It's coming, but not yet. Just hold on. 
Sometimes the answer is not yet, but it's coming. And then there are those times where we get an immediate yes, and our faith inflames and, and it's invigorated and it swells, and those are wonderful moments. And I've been a, on the receiving end of those moments, and they're, they're fantastic when the answer is yes, and you see God manifest that. But I must say, prayer is more about, it's more than just asking and receiving. It's about having communion and fellowship with our God and our Father. But in each scenario, he hears our prayers. So we must, if we have to, trust his wisdom, trust in his providence, and trust in his answers. So the first truth Christ shows us is that who God is and what he is like. The second truth Christ shows us is that we are not entirely like this widow. Again, verse seven, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? We are not entirely like this widow because we are God's elect. Now she is our example and we should mimic and, and mirror her resolve, her persistence when it comes to prayer. But we are not like her in our, when it comes to our situation, when it comes to our position, because our, our position is in Christ. The Bible scholar Ligon Duncan, he says this, we are in a different position than we perceive ourselves to be, to be in whenever we are in despair when we are without hope and can't get a prayer. You think you are in that position of the unfortunate widow, without hope, without status, resource, or influences, but we are not. And the reason we are not because we are God's elect, we are in a privileged position. We are placed in Christ, we are adopted into God's family. And being elect mean that, means that God has set his love, has set his approval, has set his affection on us before the foundation of the world. Our election finds its, finds its home in eternity. Before one star was hung in the heavens, before Adam sinned, before we was conceived and done anything good or bad, God said that you are mine, you belong to me, and I love you with a holy, eternal, and a perfect love. We are not like this widow. We have someone who will defend us, who will advocate for us, who will stand up for us and give us justice. And we see this in verse eight. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? He said that, he would, that God will give justice speedily. And this word, this adverse speedily means quickly, suddenly. At Christ's second coming, at his arrival, he would execute justice swiftly. It would be sure and it would be sudden. At his coming, he would bring justice. Justice will be with him because he is justice. He is the justice for the elect. And he will set everything right for us all. Christ is telling us here that his coming back affirms and confirms that God has heard our prayer. His coming back affirms and confirms that God has answered 
and heard our prayer, that Christ is the ultimate answer to our prayers. And when he appears, the justice, the deliverance, the vindication, the answers that we've been praying for will also appear with him. But I do have to say this, that, not, that everything in this life, everything on this side of heaven would not be put right. Some wrongs that happen to us would not be dealt with until Christ come back, until Judgment Day. In Revelation chapter 6, John sees and hears the souls of the, of the martyrs under the altar in heaven. And he, hear, and he hears them crying out and, and praying and asking God, how long before, the before you judge and avenge us? See, they didn't get justice while they was on earth. They were still waiting for vindication. But ultimately, ultimately, at the end of the day, when he returns, all would be put right. And he would not rest until all accounts are properly settled. See, no one gets away with anything in this life. No one gets away with anything. Either they're going to pay for their sins themselves, or they're going to lay their sins at the cross where Christ paid for them. But no one gets away with anything. No prayer will go unanswered for the believer, for the Christian. He hears each and every prayer. So keep praying, keep believing, keep trusting in him so that Christ may find faith on earth when he comes. The application that we take from this, this morning has been the motif and the reoccurring theme in this message. And that's to always pray and not to lose heart. For those who do not know this God who answered prayers, the God who vindicate and give justice to his, to his people, I ask, I plead, and I beg sincerely, repent, turn, turn, turn from your prodigal, wasteful, empty life, and turn to the giver of life, turn to the one who gives abundant life and ask him to forgive you of your violations. Ask him to forgive you of your infractions and your transgressions against him. Ask him to pardon your spiritual and moral negligence to receive you and place you in Christ where you are safe from an unsafe God. Before we pray, I'd like to read a poem about prayer. And this poem is called A Lexicon for the Soul a lexicon for the soul. This trembling soul, cloaked in doubt and fear, as I genuflect to approach your throne, clumsy speech pours forth as I call you near. Silently, I settle like an ancient stone and wait for you to re-enter my humanity, rip the veil of doubt to rescue my faith so that I may encounter a deeper reality. Unlock the casements of my heart and let love infiltrate. May my mortal words take flight into your eternal realm and let the beauty of your wonder be the air I breathe. This sacramental view removes the familiar film, the bleeding God on your flesh I'll feed. And as I am consumed, as I consume you, devour me, for I want to consume you which is my greatest need. Let us pray.
Our God and our Father, we thank you and praise you that you hear each and every prayer of the believer. We thank you that you are more willing to hear and answer our prayers than we are to pray them. So let that be an initiative for us to pray to you, to find comfort in you and joy in you. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.